Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and we want to thank our nominees for being here and look forward to a very productive uh, hearing on their behalf and our country's behalf. And in, on the front end, I want to welcome Senator Cornyn, who's been here uh, once before. We thank him for his leadership and uh, his service to our country, and we're always honored to have people like you here before us. And I know you want to welcome, you want to, you want to uh, uh, say more about the nominees than we're even going to say about them. We're glad that you're going to do that and inform us. I also want to uh, welcome Ms. Pompeo, the wife of our Secretary of State, for being here. And, and uh, we are happy about the fact that her husband is also going to be here uh, next Wednesday to testify before us at 2.30. We thank you uh, for all that uh, is involved in his service. Thank you for being here. With that, Senator Cornyn. Well, thank you. Uh Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, it's my pleasure to be back here uh, with the Foreign Relations Committee, this time to introduce Brian uh, Bulatao, who's been nominated to serve as Undersecretary of State for Management. Brian previously served as Chief Operating Officer at the CIA, working with his longtime friend, uh, Mike Pompeo, and now uh, he aspires to move on to help Secretary Pompeo at the Department of State, where I understand they still have quite a few vacancies that they need to fill, and I know the committee's hard at work on. Brian has an impressive resume that reflects his commitment to our country. He's a distinguished graduate from the United States Military Academy at West Point, and he served as a paratrooper in the Army Rangers. As a member of the Special Rapid Deployment Force, he deployed on several contingency operations, which included the capture of General Noriega in Panama, and the liberation of Kuwait during Desert Shield. Following his honorable discharge, he attended Harvard Business School and went on to serve as an executive for several successful companies. He founded Thayer Aerospace in Kansas with his former classmate, our Secretary of State, and moved on to serve as the president of a packaging company in the Dallas-Fort Worth region. He left our state last year to help run the CIA, for which we forgive him, but uh, Texas was sorry to see him go but our loss is the State Department's gain. Brian cut his teeth in government as the Chief Operating Officer at the CIA. As the number three officer, Brian brought his broad private sector experience to the world's premier intelligence organization. While there, he streamlined processes and helped empower the CIA's workforce. For his notable accomplishments there, Brian received the CIA Director's Award for Distinguished Service. As a member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, I had the opportunity to meet with Brian during his tenure at the CIA, and I was impressed then, as I am now, with his professionalism and his commitment uh, to the mission of the agency and uh, our country. His experience in the CIA and in business will serve him well in his new role as Undersecretary of Management at the State Department. This position plays an important role, as the committee knows, in our nation's diplomacy by managing one of our government's largest agencies, and implementing key initiatives to make government more citizen-centered, effective, and efficient. The State Department has more than 75,000 employees, I'm told, in 276 posts around the world, and maintains diplomatic relations with 191 countries. That's a tough job to manage, and Brian will have direct oversight over the department's 12 bureaus and offices. Of course, it will be his role to run the agent the organization smoothly while Secretary Pompeo conducts his diplomatic, our diplomatic efforts around the world. So we're fortunate to have such an adept and accomplished professional fill this position, 
and I thank you, Mr. Chairman, and the entire committee for your consideration of this excellent nominee. I know he is eager and excited to serve his country again in this new role. Thank you. Well, thank you, and thanks uh, for coming to speak on his behalf. And I know you have other business, and, and you're welcome to depart, uh, although you're welcome to stay. Today, we'll consider the nominations of individuals to serve our nation as Under Secretary of State for Management and Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations. We welcome both of you and thank you for your willingness to serve. First, we have Brian Bulateo. Mr. Bulateo serves as the Chief Operating Officer at the Central Intelligence Agency and also brings to this position extensive management experience in the private sector. After graduating from West Point and serving his country for seven years in the military, Mr. Bolateo also earned an MBA from Harvard Business School. The position of Undersecretary for Management is vitally important for the State Department because in addition to making the trains run on time, the Undersecretary is responsible for taking care of the department's most important asset, its people. The Undersecretary for Management oversees more personnel and more resources than any other position at the department. Given the State Department's many ongoing management challenges, including the cost of embassy construction, the need to modernize the department's cybersecurity, and the morale of the workforce, it's critically important that this position be filled quickly by someone who can hit the ground running. Brian Bulateo currently plays an almost identical role at the Central Intelligence Agency and had an accomplished career managing complex organizations in the private sector. So I look forward to hearing his views on how to make the State Department more successful. Next, we have Dr. Denise Natali. Did I pronounce it correctly? Thank you. I had the benefit of Corning pronouncing the other name well. To serve as Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Dr. Natali has a combination of scholarship and field experience that is likely to serve her, her well in this role. The history of this bureau and the office that preceded it has not always been straightforward, and its mission has changed and evolved. Dr. Natalie's greatest challenge will be to define and solidify the value in the minds of the rest of the department and, and the interagency of a functional bureau with a keen focus on conflict prevention, crisis response, and stabilization. We appreciate her service at the National Defense University, and we wish her well in this endeavor. Our thanks to all of you uh, for being here. I know you'll want to uh, introduce your families at the appropriate time. We thank them for being here, and with that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, my friend Bob Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to the nominees, but before I turn to them, let me just make some prefatory remarks. I, I want to reiterate publicly that this committee and the Senate must hold hearings on pressing topics with witnesses from the administration. The surreal images of a U.S. president undermining his intelligence agencies and capitulating and fawning over a dictator who attacked and is attacking our democratic system must not only be forever burned in our collective memories, also called to action. The President took an oath of office to serve the American people and preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. His behavior Monday in Helsinki, from my view, is an abdication of that oath. But Mr. Chairman, we also took an oath when we were elected to serve the American people. We cannot abdicate our duties. Senators on both sides of the aisle 
must immediately demand upon open hearings from President Trump's national security team. Pro-Kremlin media at this moment are putting out more information supposedly about agreements that were uh, arrived by President Trump with President Putin than anything that I know as the senior most Democrat on this committee, that as far as I know that any member of the committee knows, uh, and that the American people know. So I'm pleased that Secretary Pompeo will be up here next week, but let's be clear. We originally requested his presence to discuss the president's summit with the North Korean dictator. In the wake of his most recent unsuccessful trip to North Korea, we still need to know what's going on there. It's been quite some time now. Is America any safer from the threat of North Korea? We have no idea. And now we have what may seem as unlimited questions about the summit in Helsinki. And we need the time for the Secretary to cover these two critical topics. There are many other topics in the world, but certainly these two critical topics. And I hope he will afford us that time. Americans and the members of this committee deserve to know what the President and foreign autocrats are agreeing to behind closed doors. And if the administration is unwilling to consult with this committee in a meaningful fashion on vital national security issues, then we must consider all appropriate responses with regards to nominees before this committee. I hope it doesn't come to that, but I certainly will consider it if we cannot make progress. Let me turn to the Wait, nominees. Yes, I'd be happy, John. So look, I'll take back seat to no one in the United States Senate on challenging uh, what happened uh, at NATO, what happened at Helsinki. I will take a back seat to no one in this body. Uh, Pompeo is coming up here next Wednesday. We are going to have a full hearing. And every member of this committee is going to have a chance to take whatever issue they wish to take up. So it's almost as if we can't take yes for an answer. He's coming in. Every committee member will have a chance to grill him to find out what happened in that meeting. I look forward to doing the same. I don't know what happened. I don't know if anything occurred in North Korea other than a press conference. So I've got the same questions, but the fact is they're coming in next Wednesday. It's going to be a fulsome hearing, and I thank you for your cooperation in allowing that to happen. And I agree. The State Department has been remiss in getting us witnesses on numbers of topics. I'll, I'll agree to that. Secondly, though, there are a lot of positions that are not filled. So, you know, it's a, it's a catch-22, is it not? I mean, we, we, we want to have hearings. In some cases, we don't have people to have hearings with. So, so I look forward to working with you and putting whatever pressure we need to put on the administration to make sure we find out. The first step is getting them up here like we've both pushed for and, and it is now happening. So, uh, you know, I take back seat to no one on pressing this administration for some of the worst things that I've seen happen in public as it relates to our country, not to you or not to anyone else on this committee. Well, Mr. Chairman, uh, let me say I, I uh, sorry if you took the comments personally. Uh, I'm just simply saying what is obvious. We don't get administration witnesses here very easily. And yes, there aren't uh, sometimes witnesses to call up, but that's not the fault of this committee. There aren't even nominations in many places until recently. And then we get nominations who people file questionnaires and they lie, or they have incredible loss of memory. You can't say that you never had, were part of a legal process, and then there are 25 cases that you were involved in. How do you forget that in your questionnaire? You can forget one, 
You can't forget 25. You can't say that in your business pursuits, you only had one company when you had 20. That's just an example of what we're getting with some of these nominees. So I, and I told the secretary that I will work with him to pursue and fill the positions that we critically need and that I want to see happen. By the same token, I'm not going to rubber stamp nominees who in the process of their simple presentation to the committee cannot be forthcoming and transparent, and that a simple LexisNexis search will show you all of these things. Something is wrong with that. Because if you can't be truthful for me when you're trying to be considered by the committee, what am I to believe once you're confirmed? So that's, that's part of our challenge, Mr. Chairman. But I'm glad the Secretary is going to be here. I said that. But we also need time. We've been trying to get him here since North Korea. Now we have two major issues. We need the time to ask those questions. And I appreciate that the Chairman worked very hard to get the Secretary to come despite his travel schedule. Well, let me say this. And I'm glad we're having this discussion in front of the person that's going to be managing so many people. Uh, it is too difficult to get him up here. It is. I agree with that 100%. It, they are pressing us too hard, trying to negotiate over nominations if we do this. I couldn't agree with you more. And just know, I stand shoulder to shoulder with you to put whatever pressure we need to put on them to get the right And, and I know that and to be right true. now, it's been too hard. It's been frustrating. I'm glad that he's coming. But I'd say likely it may be the last time he comes up here. But who knows? So it's, it's, it's been a pain in the backside to get witnesses up here. I agree with you 100%, and I'm glad that our nominee is hearing this uh, today, and hopefully he's going to straighten that out. And so it was a worthwhile discussion, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Bulatale, you served for years in the Army and as the chief, most recently as the chief operating officer of the CIA, so let me start by thanking you for your service to our country. You've been nominated to position in the department that is of great trust and importance. It's not a job that often generates any headlines, which is probably a good thing, but it's critically important to success, successfully executing the implementation of our foreign policy. You and I had an opportunity to meet. I appreciate that opportunity. I told you that I have serious concerns of understanding the management philosophy, particularly that took place prior to Secretary Pompeo. Uh, from a disastrous hiring freeze to an ill-conceived reorganization proposal to concerns that have been raised that have been referred to the Inspector General of Politicalization of Personnel, budget issues, so much more. So as I told you, I don't subscribe those to you or even to the Secretary as he inherited this, but I do want to know uh, where you're coming from if you're to be confirmed on these critical issues. I'd like to have a sense of what it is that your thinking is with terms of uh, how you'll come across to the job, how you intend to bring your experience to institute effective management and processes for the department where you think course corrections are needed. And I look forward to your testimony. Uh, for more than 17 months into the administration, we finally have a nominee for the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. So I want to welcome uh, Ms. Natali, who has a demonstrated record of service, particularly with regard to Iraq, and also has a great asset in that she is originally from the great state of New Jersey. Um, at a time of, uh, it always helps, uh, most of the time it always helps, uh, a time of uh, proliferating crisis across the globe uh, from Burma, Yemen, and South Sudan to Afghanistan and the Ukraine, a global record of 68 million people have been forced from their homes as a result of persecution, conflict, and violence. Our national security apparatus must evolve and have the right tools to effectively promote conflict prevention and post-conflict stabilization. 
Appropriately investing in conflict prevention has the potential to save precious human lives and resources down the line. Prevention and stabilization tools are a vital complement to our military and intelligence tools. If confirmed to be the Assistant Secretary for Conflict and Stabilization Operations, you not only have the responsibility to analyze and craft operational solutions to conflict and stabilization, but will also need to energetically lead and elevate a bureau that is demoralized, neglected, and misunderstood. I think uh, some of us are concerned that the administration does not have a grasp uh, and a commitment to the hard and complex work of conflict prevention and stabilization. I'm pleased to see that you have a background in post-conflict relief, reconstruction, stabilization, at least as it regards to Iraq. I look forward to hearing from you how you intend to be prepared to tackle these responsibilities on a much grander scale, as well as your priorities, plans, and intentions for the bureaus. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. All right, we'll now turn to the nominees. Mr. Brian Bulateo, we thank you. Um, to our first nominee, Mr. Brian Bulateo, we thank you for your willingness to take on this critical role. Uh, I'll have to say uh, I certainly look forward to what happens in this hearing. I don't know that we could find anyone more qualified for this position, nor committed, nor one who has uh, a, a better relationship with the person he's going to be serving with after many years of you guys working together. So I'm glad for you to be here. I thank you. Look forward to your five-minute summary of your testimony. Any written documents you want to enter into the record uh, will be done without, uh, without objection. Uh, please go ahead. Good morning, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Menendez and distinguished members of the committee. Thank you for the privilege to speak with you today. With me this morning is my family, my fiance April, my daughter Tristan, my son Connor. I'm grateful for all their love and support throughout my years of service. Uh, they're my compass, they're my inspiration to reach new heights and my comfort when I sometimes fall short. They keep me going, they keep me humble. I would be remiss if I didn't also mention the support of my mother Brenda and my father who is no longer with us. My dad was an immigrant from the Philippines. As a teenager during World War II, he witnessed firsthand the tragedies of armed conflict and when diplomacy fails. That defining experience compelled him on a lifelong mission to heal and he became the first surgeon and family physician in the small town I grew up in in north central Pennsylvania. He was always up early in the morning, surgeries at the hospital, then driving over to his family medicine practice where he would see every patient that was waiting for him in the waiting room, then back to the hospital to make further rounds. He taught me by his example the true meaning of selfless service. My mother's parents were immigrants from Greece, they came to this country in search of the American dream, and I'm forever thankful for my parents for their unwavering encouragement to live a life of integrity, to work hard every day, and to pursue the unlimited opportunities and freedoms our great country offers to every one of its citizens. I'd also like to thank the President and Secretary Pompeo for their confidence in me <coughs> and for nominating me to serve in this capacity. It is a high calling and an honor, and if confirmed, I will spare no effort to faithfully execute the mission entrusted to me alongside our State Department team. Let me briefly <coughs> highlight what this mission looks like from my perspective as the, as the nominee for Undersecretary of Management. It starts with our culture. It starts with our swagger. It starts with the relentless pursuit of excellence in everything we do. If confirmed, I will work with the Secretary to foster a culture that encourages innovation and continuous learning. 
We need to empower people to lead. We need to harness the tremendous talent and expertise that resides in the department. We need to unlock this potential by removing barriers, providing the team with the right tools, and streamlining administrative functions so we stay focused on our highest priorities and our core mission. So for me, this is about driving a high-performance organization, and I want to do that by getting the basics right. If confirmed, I'll focus on three basic building blocks uh, for my initial 90 days. Number one, it's the right people. Number two, it's the right strategy. And number three, it's the right execution with the right tools and foundation to pursue excellence. Let me, let me explore number one, the right people. It's a multi-layered question. Do we have the right quantity of people in the right location with the right diversity, with the right skills and training? Uh, don't make mistake, this is a team effort. This includes our foreign service, our civil service, our locally employed staff. As of last month, we had 40% vacancies with our undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, deputy assistant secretaries, and our critical ambassadors. If confirmed, I will support Secretary Pompeo's commitment to get our team on the field and engaged in competing on behalf of America. We need to be onboarding the right number of new hires to meet our core mission requirements. Hiring the best of the best with diverse backgrounds and experiences is critical to our global mission, and it will be a top priority for me. We need to have the right diversity, enriching our workforce by targeting diverse communities across the U.S. to meet our talent needs. And we need to be in the right locations. In essence, uh, as the director of the CA reminds me, we are a field-forward organization. Uh, and we need to make sure we align our presence with our strategic priorities. Regarding the right skills and training, we have a tremendous asset in the Foreign Service Institute, and I'm excited about the Foreign Area Specialized Training Center coming online next year. And we need to clearly articulate career paths and professional development model that enhances our bench strength for future enterprise leaders. Let me shift to basic building block number two, the right strategy and resource alignment. If confirmed, I look forward to working with each bureau across the department to identify their strategic priorities. Really, what are we trying to achieve? What, how are we aligning our existing resource to that? What does success look like? And what are the measures of effectiveness we should be monitoring? I'm committed to advocating for a budget that fully funds the department's requirements putting in place the appropriate oversight and metrics to ensure the department meets its obligation to use taxpayer dollars wisely and effectively. I will support Secretary Pompeo in requesting funding that serves the national interest and implement the appropriation laws as passed by Congress. I've never been shy to end a program that was no longer adding value, and I've never been shy to ask for additional resources if we need them for, to successfully execute the mission. And lastly, number three, right execution with the right systems, tools, and infrastructure to support excellence. <clears throat> I want to focus on three subcategories there. I want to make sure we get security, safety, and smart risk-taking. I want to make, B, I want to make sure we have the right things going on with our overseas building operations. And third, cybersecurity and a modernized IT infrastructure. Regarding, uh, regarding A, there's no question the safety and security of our personnel and their families remains a significant priority. Secretary Pompeo cares deeply about and works hard to protect the people of the State Department. If confirmed, I will assure the B Bureau of Diplomatic Security has the resources, the tools, the technology, and fully integrate it into department decision making to most effectively perform this critical task. We don't get paid to take risk, we get paid to know which risks are worth taking. 
regarding overseas building operations. I'm all for good design, but I will take on time and on budget every day of the week. If confirmed, I will work hard to ensure our people have secure new buildings where required and that they're completed in the best time, at the best cost and the best value to support the critical mission we have. Finally, if confirmed, I will help bring the department operations into the 21st century by modernizing our systems and programs. That includes rapid cloud adoption and, ad and upgrading our IT architecture, increasing bandwidth overseas, moving data from silos so we have an enterprise perspective so we can better collaborate, enhance big data analytics, and ultimately make better decisions on behalf of the American people. The women and men of the State Department serve our country in some of the most challenging places around the world, and they risk their lives daily, whether serving in a war zone, an expeditionary location under the threat of terrorist attack, where diseases uh, or criminal violence is prevalent. They work long hours, and they're often separated from their families, but they're passionate to advance our nation's foreign policy and support the work of diplomacy. With so many challenges facing the United States around the world, our diplomacy and foreign affairs demands every technical, informational, logistical advantage we can muster. We must be aggressive in protecting our security, enhancing our prosperity, and advancing America's interest. And having a State Department team that's empowered and equipped with the right tools to achieve this mission is integral to making that happen. If confirmed, it will be my goal to do all this and more on behalf of the American people. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Natali. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of the Bureau, and Conflict, the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you the members of the committee, the White House, Secretary Pompeo, and the Department of State. I'd like to take a moment to thank my family, particularly my parents and my daughter, Haleen, who is with me today, for their unconditional support and love, which is not only shaped who I am, but gives you an idea of how I'm going to approach this job. I grew up in a small ethnic working class neighborhood in New Jersey, where my nuclear family, grandparents, aunt, uncle, and cousins all lived on the same side of the street. My parents didn't go to college, although my mother at 54 years old got her PhD in theology, but they made sure that their five children would. And my father, gave, my father, who's now 84, gave us wonderful life lessons, but the one that stands out the most is this one. He would say, be whatever you want to be, just don't be content with life. I spent the last 30 years doing just that. From my time working for a healthcare NGO in Peshawar, Pakistan, to serving as a DART team member in northern Iraq in support of Operation Provide Comfort right after the first Gulf War, to many years in, uh, in Iraq and post-Saddam Iraq, teaching, building universities, and doing my independent research, I learned the important triggers of conflict, the, the, the dynamics on the ground, how they interact with regional actors, supranational interests, and most importantly, the very messiness of transitioning from war to peace, from authoritarianism to democracy. The past seven and a half years, I've had the opportunity to work with some of the greatest minds, strategic thinkers, and colleagues at the National Defense University, where I also have been able to channel all of this local experience to the strategic level, not just on Iraq, but in support of our senior leaders so that they could make their strategic decisions, as well as other US policymakers, particularly in our countering ISIS campaign effort. 
In preparing for the future in this position, I see one overarching problem or challenge, and that is this. How do we respond the balance between the pressing need to, re to, to provide stabilization assistance and the concomitant need to be judicious with our resources and also to be more efficient in our outcomes or more effective in our outcomes? Here are some examples. The trends in global conflict are, are alarming. There's been an, been an uptick in major civil war and high-intensity conflicts since 2010. More than half of the conflicts that have ended since 2000 have returned to violence within an average of seven years. And the consequences are no less critical. Proliferation of militias, the emergence of terrorist groups such as ISIS, Al-Qaeda, economic loss, and worse still, massive refugee flows and the atrocities against civilians. All of these consequences have critical impact on our national security interests. While the United States certainly has strong interest in promoting stability, we simply cannot respond to all conflicts. So this is where I, I ask, how do we move forward? And I would turn to the, the 2018 Stabilization Assistance Act, which is an important document that was co-authored by CSO, the Office of Foreign Assistance Resources, in conjunction with USAID and DOD. And it lays out important guidelines on how to strategically determine how, when, and where we provide our stabilization assistance so that we can best leverage our diplomatic engagement, military and economic support, and to assure greater impact and effectiveness. I turn to this review because if confirmed, I would like to, to, to um, implement some of the key recommendations of this, of this guideline. And, and here are my three top. Um, to clarify, as we, has been indicated, the CSO mission and its value added into the Department of State. I understand that CSO does remarkable work, and I would like to further integrate that and increase the connectivity between CSO and, other, and the State Department as a functional bureau. Secondly, to streamline stabilization. I'd like to translate the roles of the State Department and the Department of Defense into an, as agreed upon in the SAR into a practical day-to-day -day division of labor that just gets the job done efficiently. Secondly, Within this, greater collaboration with interagency inter and burden sharing with our international partners. Third, is to institutionalize a process where we can prioritize aid, and I like to use the word strategic triage. How do we um, align our stabilization priorities, uh, and I would with the 2017 White House National Security Strategy, as well as where we can have an impact and continuously measure how effective we are. Are our programs working? Are we being successful along the way? By addressing these issues, I hope to ensure more realistic, effective, and cost-efficient stabilization operations that provide invaluable to support to U.S. policy and our national security interests. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your uh, testimony. Mr. Bulatale, let me just start off by saying uh, you're a great example of what uh, immigration has meant for our country. As I listened to your opening statement, a Filipino father, a Greek mother, served your country as a ranger, got to be the CIA operations officer, uh, management, uh, and now nominated for one of the most significant positions in the State Department. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary history, one that we should be collectively proud of and be reminded of. 
I have two questions before I get to management questions. Uh, do you agree with the intelligence community's assessment that Russia interfered in the 2016 elections and with the intent to harm Secretary Clinton's candidacy and help elect President Trump? <clears throat> Senator, I've reviewed the ICA report and concur with its findings. And will you trust and rely on intelligence from agencies that will be working alongside you as you think about what are the needs of the department? Senator, I implicitly trust the professionalism, the objectivity, and the great skill and courage of our uh, members of our intelligence community and look forward to working with them in my uh, potential new role if confirmed. Thank you very much. If confirmed, will you commit to making sure the department responds promptly to our letters and requests for information? Yes, sir. Uh, do you, uh, I'm troubled, uh, you and I talked about this a little bit, and I, I appreciate your answer, but I want to hear it for the record, uh, that political appointees uh, at the Department of State have sought to oust or sideline career officials based on political loyalty, and I've asked the Inspector General to look into these practices. Do you think such efforts, if they are true, have any place in the federal government? Senator, I look forward to seeing the results of the Inspector General report and that of the Special Counsel. I know the Secretary truly values the professionalism of both our civil service and foreign service. Uh, and I myself have reached out to all former undersecretaries of management, no matter what administration, for the last 20 years. Uh, there's only been four, by the way. And appreciate their uh, input. I think the secretary believes that the department will be successful by surrounding ourselves with successful people. The kinds of things we need to be looking for are in intellect, expertise, judgment, teamwork, uh, and that's how we should be selecting our people. And if, if any of that is occurring, I would encourage, if I'm confirmed, that everyone reports the, to the appropriate channels so they can be looked at. And, and, and if that was the case, how would you respond if you found that uh, uh, those allegations to be true? Well, Senator, again, the, the important thing for the department to succeed is have the best people in the best roles. I don't believe that, that uh, using that criteria is the way we should be selecting or determining people's uh, roles in the department. What's your current view on the number of vacancies in critical State Department leadership positions, and how soon, if you are confirmed, do you expect to, to see nominees for open undersecretary and assistant secretary, as well as ambassadorial posts? Senator, that's a, that's a critical question, and if I'm confirmed, I know I will support the secretary's goal of getting our, our team in place. Uh, there is a critical shortage now. There's a lot of work being done to get those nominees before the committee. There's a lot of work being done to make sure that they're uh, vetted and ready to go and so we can start engaging on behalf of the American people. And I'll, if confirmed, I'll commit to helping in that and, regard. And I hope that you'll take the discussion that the chairman and I had uh, back uh, reaffirming to the secretary what I told him personally. We want to work with you to fill positions, but we need honest interest. Somebody needs to do some vetting here before they get to us. And if they get to us, which we're fine, whether they be a political or career appointee, I have no problem with that. But they need to be transparent. Otherwise, we fall, we come into roadblocks and we don't get positions filled. So I hope that you, particularly in this position, will uh, hopefully uh, help us execute it in a, in a better way. I will, Senator. Uh, will you come before the committee for full public hearings on the, any restructuring of state or USAID if major changes are proposed prior to making those changes? Yes, Senator. I appreciate that. You and I talked about the difference between uh, consultation and notification. Notification is when you tell me something you're going to do. Consultation is when we talk about it before it happens. 
uh, not just me, but the committee. And uh, we may not always agree, and that's, that will probably happen, but at least we'll have an opportunity to give you input. So I, I appreciate your commitment to that. Uh, let, me, let me turn to, I have other questions, but I'll save those for the record. Let me turn to Dr. Natalia. I, I appreciated very much your, your statements. Um, and uh, I, I just have a caveat, though, of uh, concern of what you said. We all want efficiencies uh, in whatever it is that we are doing. Uh, but sometimes, uh, you know, I look for uh, uh, individuals who are going to be assistant secretaries within their field who will be strong advocates within their field. As I said to Mr. Bulateo, are you going to have a sharp elbow? As a ranger, I'm pretty sure he does. But, uh, you know, but are you going to have a sharp elbow when you're internally in the process of advocating for the mission of your bureau? And so while we want to be effective and efficient and, and, and cost effective, uh, sometimes we have to make the case as to why the mission of the Bureau can actually save us not only money but lives uh, at the end of the day. If we have more uh, conflict sta uh, uh, and stabilization efforts, uh, sometimes we don't have to send our sons and daughters abroad. And so, do, do you understand what I'm getting at? I'm a little concerned about your remarks in the, in, in, that are very, very focused on efficiency, but I also want to know that you're going to be an advocate uh, when, it, when it is, particularly when it's appropriate for the Bureau to have the resources necessary to accomplish your mission. If you put your microphone on. Thank you, Senator. I, I fully agree with you. Um, the, the one part I'm trying to keep into my five minutes, um, I fully advocate for preventative preventative action so that we can obviate kinetic action. So that includes um, engagement fully in the Atrocity Prevention Board, for example, um, making sure and, and, and enforcing or, or supporting much of the data analytics that the department does. That tries to forecast where we see conflicts or potential conflicts so that we can get involved. This is not about moving back from engagement. It's about probably spending more time beforehand so that we can mitigate some of the negative. And as we know, human tolls of atrocities also make uh, reconciliation and, and conflict stabilization much more difficult on the back end. So I, I, again, I, have, I fully agree with you, and I look forward to working with you on this issue if confirmed. I have a few other questions, Mr. Chairman, but I'll save it for a second. Yes, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations, Mr. Bolateo and Dr. Natale on your nominations, and I look forward to working with you both if you are confirmed. I, I want to start with you, Mr. Bilateo, and um, follow up a little bit on some of the questions that Senator Menendez started to raise. Uh, as you may be aware, earlier this month, the Senate Appropriations Committee unanimously approved its state foreign operations bill, which provides $54.2 billion in funding for the State Department and USAID. This is a stark contrast to the proposal that was submitted by the administration, which would have slashed the international affairs budget by over 22% um, from the previous year's enacted level. Uh, if confirmed, will you work and will you commit to this committee that you will work to protect the budget that Congress passes for the State Department? Senator, if confirmed, I commit to using any additional funding to advance the administration's priorities in line with congressional directives and consistent with the applicable law. Um, thank you. And are you also willing to publicly commit to the committee to forswear impoundment 
um, which you know is illegal under the Budget and Impoundment Control Act of 1974, which is the way that some administrations have tried not to spend the money that Congress has appropriated. Senator, again, I, I look forward to uh, working with the committee, working with Congress to understand our priorities for funding, and we'll spend the funding applicable with a consistent law. Thank you. Um, again, to follow up on Senator Menendez's questions, I share the concerns about staffing levels at the State Department. I was very pleased to hear you talk about that being a priority. Uh, according to the nonpartisan American Foreign Service Association, Funding for core diplomatic capabilities has fallen by almost 25% over the last decade, and during the same period of time, diplomatic spending by China has increased over 40%. So, Mr. Chairman, I would ask if we could include an article on this subject from the American Foreign Service Association um, in the record. Without objection. Thank you. Um, also, I have read some of those disturbing reports about administration appointees at the State Department who have gone through um, personal social media pages of career State Department employees to determine their personal leanings and have uh, called them to task. And dis the suggestion is that some people have been dismissed because of that. Um, again, I heard you say to Senator Menendez that you will take very active um, measures to address those kinds of um, activities at the State Department. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, Senator. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Dr. Natale, you talked about the importance of our stabilization efforts to be prioritized where they can really make a difference. Did I understand that correctly? Well, we can have this. Um, I just got back a little over two weeks ago from Syria and Iraq. And I was very impressed, much more so than I had expected to be, by progress in Iraq, where they have almost succeeded in working with us to defeat ISIS in Iraq, where they um, have dramatically reduced terrorist attacks there, where we've seen uh, an election that went um, almost without um, attacks that, while we didn't have as many people as I would have liked participate in that, um, it got, um, it was viewed as being pretty fair and pretty free. So I was pleased by what I saw. It was a very different environment than the last time I had visited Iraq. Um, but I was concerned because I heard there and in Syria, we were in northeastern Syria along the Turkish border. We visited in Mambij, um, flew over Kobani, visited some other small towns in that area, um, where reconstruction has started, where stabilization efforts have been very successful, where we are working very closely with the SDF, the Syrian Defense Forces, who were much more professional than I had expected them to be. So I was really optimistic and pleased with the progress that I saw there. What I was concerned about was that what we heard from um, our people on the ground is that the stabilization funding that is so desperately needed to maintain the progress that has occurred in both Iraq and Syria is being held up by the administration. And while it's a lot of money, relatively speaking, it's not a lot of money. And if we don't 
provide that funding soon, we're going to see those gains undermined, and we're going to see Russia and Iran and the Assad regime come back into those areas in Syria. We are going to see the Iranian influence in Iraq undermine the progress there. So can I ask you if you think we need to provide those stabilization funds, and will you commit to working to do that if you're confirmed? Thank you, Senator. Um, I agree with you. And again, having have spent so much time in Iraq before ISIS, during, and, and speaking to some of the NGOs, I was just in Iraq in April, um, one of the most important things is to be there so that we can consolidate those gains so that ISIS does not come back. We are fortunate to have local legitimate authorities on the ground to work with, the same in Syria. My concern, and I share with you, is if we just are not there, we're just opening up the opportunities for ISIS to return. So yes, if confirmed, I do look forward to working with you on this issue so that we can continue not to stay there ourselves, but to work with locally legitimate right. authorities so that they can provide security to their regions. And we've seen that in Iraq. I agree with you. Thank you. Um, absolutely. Would you also agree that the threat is not just from ISIS, it's also from Iranian and Russian influences in those regions? Yes, I do. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Excuse me, Senator. Senator Young, thanks for coming back. And yeah. Thank you, Chairman. Well, I thank our nominees for your interest in uh, serving our country. Uh, Dr. Natali, um, in your prepared statement, uh, you suggest that the Department of State sometimes struggles in, in its practice to uh, fulfill its role as the lead agency for stabilization within the U.S. government. Is that a fair characterization of your view? Uh, I would say, thank you, Senator. I would look to, again, the SAR, the Stabilization Assistance Review, which addresses that issue by, trying to, by, by saying we are going to clarify the role of what stabilization is and who does what. So taking from the SAR, stabilization is inherently a political endeavor which is nested in the State Department with CSO as the lead and then with um, delineated responsibilities between USAID and DOD. So based on some of the roadmap projected in the SAR, I would say yes, that's, that State Department would be the lead uh, in stabilization as a political endeavor. Why, why do you believe a strengthening of, of the CSO is necessary to assist with the goal of stabilization? Thank you. Because CSO, some of the, the, the mission of CSO is to anticipate, prevent, and respond to violent conflict that undermines U.S. national security interests. CSO has remarkable talents in not only anticipating through its data analytics, but its expeditionary forces that go and embed with U.S. special forces where they can, support to U.S. embassies overseas and diplomatic missions, and then taking that, this very strong analytical toolkit that that doesn't apply just to one region, but that can be used across regions in a very efficient way for our policymakers so that we can look at this and say, what are the trade-offs? How can we make this decision more effectively um, as, a, as, a, as a pattern to be used? So this is why I think that it, can, it should be embedded and enhanced within CSO. I see. Thank you. So you've extensively researched stabilization and conflict, and I know you've been preparing for this nomination. Why do you believe we haven't seen more progress in Afghanistan 
in our stabilization efforts after such enormous investment over 17 years. Thank you, Senator. I've read the recent SIGR report on Afghanistan, and one of the findings that they made, it was, it was quite harsh, that basically stabilization has been a failure, was because they not- Do you agree with those findings? I haven't been in Afghanistan for years, but I wouldn't. I would say that it was a very sound report. Yes, okay. I think it was. It was very um, analytically rigorous. Nonetheless, um, that they also tried to stabilize in areas where, where there wasn't enough security. You can't engage in a region where it's still unstable. Secondly, where you don't have local partners or local le legitimate authorities with which you can transfer that that um, stabilization assistance. So there, there's other aspects of it, but nonetheless, um, engaging in stabilization where you don't have the requisites on the ground will not allow you to have sustained uh, success. So you've indicated you believe the report was rigorous and, and I, I think thoughtful. It was, uh, yes, those I are do. my words, but I think they fairly represent. Yes, Senator. And, and so what are your thoughts on the recommendations uh, for stabilization efforts going forward that are provided in that CIGAR report. And some of this is also replicated in the SAR report, which is um, making sure that, again, that you have an, the conditions in place where you can make an impact, in my understanding, means that you have sec enough sufficient security because the safety and security of our personnel is the utmost priority. Secondly, where you have locally legitimate authorities and systems in place, that can peaceably manage this conflict and prevent violence from returning. If we don't have those partners on the ground, it's going to be difficult to do. Third, in addition to enhancing governance, addressing grievances, providing services, there's also a local level to this. And that is, do you have the political bargains and the local agreements that can be made between the local actors on the ground? And, and I, I go back a lot to the local actors part because I've, in my, in my um, past, being on the ground, if you don't have that component to it, if you don't have local buy-in, it just won't work. You referenced the SAR report, and, and uh, there are no doubt some overlap. Uh, there's no doubt some overlap between the SAR report and, and the SIGAR recommendations. Uh, to your knowledge, has a decision been made by the administration to adopt the SAR's recommendations? Thank you, Senator. To my understanding, I, I don't, I'm not aware that it has been of yet. The SAR just was, um, came out a couple of months ago. Thank Once you. confirmed, do you commit uh, to reporting back uh, to me, to other members of this committee, and providing an update on implementation of the SAR? Yes, Senator, I do. I commit to that. Okay. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses, uh, Mr. Buleteo. Um, a couple of thoughts. Uh, you talked in your testimony about in your management capacity, should you be confirmed, trying to deal with personnel and understand if there are obstacles in their way. One thing that I have found very helpful to do when I've traveled for this committee is to meet with first and second tour FSOs um, and without the ambassador president. And I usually say congratulations, you've gotten a job that is really hard to get. What will be the determinant about whether you stay and make this a career or whether you exit early? And that's a good opening question that usually then leads to quite a long discussion. Um, and some of the things, you know, there's all kinds of issues that might make people to make a decision about whether to stay or not. But there are frequently a number of sort of, I would call them kind of picayune administrative frustrations that people will put on the table. Um, as, uh, you know, I, I passed the in most intense security vetting ever to get this job, but 
I have to sign a triple in triplicate a requisition form if I'm going to get a pencil out of the supply room. I mean, can't they trust me on this? So I would encourage you to have those kinds of discussions, especially with people new or at different points in their career in the Foreign Service, because I think you can learn some good things about those kinds of obstacles that you can clear out of folks' way. So, uh, second thing I'd just like to bring to your attention is uh, I've worked very much with committee members here on an ongoing project being constructed in Virginia, the Foreign Affairs Security Training uh, Center uh, at Fort Pickett in Virginia, and that is scheduled to open in 2019. Um, and I would like your commitment at some point uh, to visit that facility as it's under construction. It's to train our foreign security officers and others to make sure that they can deal with enhanced security challenges around the world. And after you've had a chance to visit, I would like to uh, dialogue about the progress of that uh, particular project. <clears throat> Senator, if confirmed, I will make it a priority to get down there and see that. I've seen the video of what that's going to look like. I'm very excited that we're going to be able to consolidate our training there and offer every Foreign Service officer heading downrange the ability to get the right training and skills that that's going to be a fantastic facility. And, and with your own background coming from a military background, I think you'll have a high sensitivity to those security needs. Uh, Dr. Natalia, good to see you again. Uh, I appreciated having you as a witness when we did a hearing on uh, minority, the treatment of minorities in Iraq uh, a while back. And I want to ask you about, you, you talked briefly about some of the CVE tools that CSO has developed. Um, you have a countering violent extremism assessment framework, which identifies high-risk areas uh, and communities, sort of to give us some advance notice of places where there may be problems. CSO also has developed a monitoring and evaluation guide, which supports integration of high-quality monitoring uh, into uh, State Department programs. If confirmed, what priority would you place on the development, improvement, refinement of these analytical tools, and how could we use those analytical tools to better inform our decision-making? Thank you, Senator. It's good to see you again as well. Um, Again, and I would like to focus on the, the, the analytical toolbox that CSO has developed is quite sophisticated. But what I, what I think is missing is, is, again, that integrative tool. So how does it feed back into the policy making and the programming as well? Because CSO also adds this, this forecasting capability or its ability to conduct spatial analysis of where conflict is occurring and real-time data. It, it's, it's quite useful. But again, how does that get back into the programming, the policy decisions, so that, and, and continuously updating this information as well. That's, that's where I found I would like to, you know, focus on or, or um, provide greater support to. Thank you for that. And one hope that I have, um, issues dealing with migration are not, I don't think, within the CSO side of the State Department, uh, the global migration issue. But if you're going to be looking at analytical tools that would predict risk, conflict, challenges, the reality of migration patterns is certainly a significant one. Tens of millions of people, I think we realize now migration is not an episodic thing, it's a permanent condition, might be driven by disease, poverty, civil war, um, weather-related droughts, wildfires, catastrophes, water shortages. Um, the U.S. alone pulled out of the U.N. Global Compact on Migration in December of 2017. The, I think last week they completed sort of a framework of best practices for nations to try to deal with the new reality, the, the new reality of migration patterns and as a source of instability. I don't see it being good for either the U.S. or the world for the U.S. to be the sole non-participant uh, in these discussions. 
If you believe, as I do, that migration poses security challenges and stability challenges, it would be my hope that that would be uh, advocated within the State Department and that there might be a way for the U.S. to rejoin. My understanding of the decision as it was made by the administration. It was communicated by the U.N. Uh, the Ambassador of the United Nations, but there was some significant disagreement within the State Department about whether it would be a good idea for the U.S. to pull out of a best practices dialogue with the nations of the world to deal with one of the fundamental stability and security challenges we're dealing with now. So I know you'll be focusing on that as you use these analytical tools, the reality and the security threat that migration can pose, but I hope that the U.S. would get back into being part of the solution rather than a non-participant. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for holding the hearing. Uh, Mr. Boltail, thank you for coming to my office yesterday. We had a good discussion. I wanted to follow up on a couple of things. Um, we had an uh, unfortunate incident in uh, Cuba um, about a year and a half ago to start, and uh, some uh, since then of uh, an unexplained, uh, it was first called a sonic attack, or some kind of acoustic attack. My understanding is that uh, FBI and others have pulled back from that, saying that they can't be sure that it was. In fact, we don't know what it was, how it was, who it was, why it was, uh, but still something occurred. And uh, I think the State Department took uh, what it felt was appropriate action to reduce uh, a number of personnel there. Uh, on May 23rd, uh, Secretary Pompeo talked about an incident that happened in China, uh, quote, abnormal sensation of sound and pressure, uh, medical in in indications that were very similar, and, quote, entirely consistent uh, with those experienced by American diplomats posted in Havana. Uh, what has been done in China um, in, term, in, in response to that? Senator, thank you. If, if confirmed, I can commit to you uh, to be extremely aggressive in finding the culpability, the who, the how, and the what of, of these incidents, whether they're in Havana or, or China. Uh, as far as I know, in China, it's my understanding the department is working with local officials to try and further investigate it, and we've um, taken the precautions in terms of medical and security with our personnel there uh, to make sure that we mitigate and are doing everything we can to make sure that their safety is paramount. Right. If, if confirmed, uh, if uh, we don't find out, if we have no more additional information as to who, the what, the why, the how, um, will we take the same precautions that we have taken in Cuba, in China, in terms of uh, personnel? What would be your rec recommendation? Uh, Senator, I think we have to, if I'm confirmed, I think we have to look at each of those specific to the context and the situation that are occurring there. And if we feel that same threat or the same uh, conditions exist for our workforce, for any U.S. government workforce, I think we have to take very similar precautions. But I think we need to evaluate and investigate that and make sure we understand what exactly the extent and the scope of these uh, incidents that are occurring and take the appropriate precautions. Okay. I think that's exactly right. I think that's what you should do. Unfortunately, I believe that the policy that you will be going into doesn't allow for that. Uh, the policy right now requires that the State Department, if they downgrade or make uh, our diplomatic presence an unaccompanied post, for example, where spouses and children uh, don't go, then that that automatically requires that an advisory be issued uh, in terms of the general public and their travel, as has been done in Cuba. 
and it has had, and I think that you would acknowledge, and everybody who has traveled to Cuba uh, would, that it's had a very detrimental effect in terms of Americans traveling who assist, and our policy in Cuba is to help those entrepreneurs and others who have achieved some modicum of independence, economic and political, from their government uh, by opening up Airbnbs, or uh, bed and breakfasts, uh, private restaurants, and others. And now, uh, American groups looking to travel, look at that travel advisory and think we might have liability issues, uh, we can't do it. So it's diminished travel significantly. I know, I've been traveling down there. And, uh, and the, the problem is, when you look at, uh, as you mentioned, you have to look at these things individually. There have been more than a million American travelers to Cuba, uh, I think over the past year. There has not been one corroborated case of any attack by anybody or of the nature that uh, it's being discussed on an American traveler. Yet still, our policy right now, and it's not statute, it can be changed, uh, requires that if you have a, a certain designation for the diplomatic post, then you also issue a type of warning. I trust that that's going to be looked at because I don't think that we want or should issue with regard to China, regardless of what comes out of this investigation, an overall blanket advisory for Americans to travel to China. Uh, it's a big country. Americans can I make, make those assessments themselves. But, uh, but anyway, what, what will be your commitment when you get there if, you, if you're nominated or uh, confirmed? Senator, first let me say, having a new generation of entrepreneurs uh, in Cuba uh, is a great long-term benefit for them understanding how freedom and opportunity and the rule of law works, and that will be great to see that evolve to, with our neighbor to the south. Having said that, I know the secretary committed and committed to you to look at that policy specifically and evaluate if it makes sense to continue to issue the kind of travel advisories that have been uh, produced by the state, and I'm... I am aware that there is ongoing active dialogue within the department to produce those set of recommendations that will look at that criteria and figure out if that policy makes sense to change. And, and you're correct, that is within the policy of the State Department, not law. And if I'm confirmed, I am committed to sitting down with my team, the head of diplomatic security, uh, our bureau chiefs, and to figure out what should be the right way forward balancing all those interests that you've outlined? Well, the commitment made to me that is that this wouldn't take months, it'd take a matter of a couple of weeks uh, to make this assessment, and it's still going on months and months later. So uh, I think it's uh, well past time uh, for this assessment to be completed, but thank you for your testimony. Thank you, thank you very much for pressing that issue, and I, I have you gotten any written responses uh, at all relative to this policy? I know you've been pushing for it for some time. Uh, back in May, I did that, uh, that um, something was being reviewed. This was back in May uh, when I was uh, told at that time verbal assurances that it wouldn't be months, it would be a matter of a couple of weeks. Now I'm told there was a, a group going to go to Cuba um, to do an additional review, but uh, that's been delayed. Um, I don't know how in the world we can move forward with uh, additional nominations or confirmations until that is done and completed and we have a recommendation. 
What I think I hear being said, and I, I know we have people from the State Department and the audience and some tuning in, is my guess is before these noms will be confirmed on the floor, you want an answer. That is correct. And, and Senator, it's my understanding that that trip with the right leadership is, is scheduled to occur uh, shortly. Uh, and I'm, if I'm confirmed, I'm committed to, yeah. to taking this question for the record and getting back to you on kind of where we are on those recommendations and if they're under review uh, and, and how we're thinking about that. But I think, you know, people should be listening to what's being said here. And it's unfortunate that we get in a place where leverage has to be occurred. You're obviously an outstanding choice for this position, but I think the other people in the State Department listening should take note that I think what's being said is, in spite of your tremendous credentials, this is an unanswered request that needs to be answered prior to you advancing. And I would say on the stabilization funds that the White House is holding up, the same would be the case uh, for, our, for our other nominees. So it appears to be stuck specifically with the President with no response whatsoever as to why it's being held up. And I would just make notice that that, that needs to be fixed before these advance. Senator Booker. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Bulatau, am I pronouncing that right, sir? Bulatau? Bulatau. 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 Bulatau, thank you, sir. Um, and it's Booker, by the way. Booker, you pronounce it. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I have a lot of concerns, especially as I travel, the lack of diversity within the State Department. Uh, and the numbers are kind of stunning. Are you aware of the uh, numbers of diversity within the State Department as a whole? Uh, Senator, I've had a, scene, a brief uh, highlight of what those numbers look like. If confirmed, I'm committed to having a diverse and inclusive State Department. We should be leading that effort amongst U.S. government. We're lagging that effort now. Uh, and we have to make sure we weave diversity into the whole life cycle of our talent, uh, whether that's from the recruiting, whether that we look at promotions, whether we look at the training we provide. Uh, foreign policy excellence requires a breadth and depth of perspective. And you get that perspective by having diversity of background, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of thought, diversity of experience. And I look forward to working with the team to make the progress uh, that we need to on that front. I, I'm really grateful to hear that. Diversity is not just about having a rainbow of people uh, and uh, different shades of melanin. It actually contributes substantially to the mission of the State Department, correct? I mean, diversity is, is not my mission. It's everybody's mission at the State Department. And having that diversity of thought usually allows us to make better insights, better decisions, and better perspectives on the challenges and the complexity that we face. I, I really appreciate that. And, and study after study, uh, business studies, uh, business teams do better when they're diverse teams, and that's really important. Um, I had a good give and take with our Secretary of State in his confirmation hearings about a lot of his rhetoric, uh, particularly towards Muslim Americans uh, and gay and lesbian Americans. And my concern was uh, that it, it's hard to have a leader sometimes who has said openly, I will do whatever I can to end the ability for people to marry that are same-sex couples uh, and some of his rhetoric on Muslim Americans. And when I'm out in the field and talking to people, I often ask folks when I'm in different countries about the diversity. I hear very significant uh, concerns about the lack of diversity, some of which you've expressed, understanding the difference it makes. Uh, especially when you're abroad, you want the face of America really to reflect America. But I just, I'm just concerned now uh, as I talk to folks about 
pipelines coming into the State Department, that we still keep robust pipelines uh, from uh, religious diversities, uh, um, racial diversities, as well as uh, uh, straight and LGBTQ Americans. Can you just give me some assurances that you're focused on how do you create robust pipelines, especially leading up into senior leadership positions in the State Department, which is even woefully less diverse? Well, thank you, Senator. As you know, th this diversity question is a question that takes time because you got to start with the hiring and getting that pipeline right from the beginning. I'm very excited that our Wrangle and our Pickering scholarships and fellowships are back on track and that when I look at, again, the snapshot that I saw from a recruiting and hiring uh, within our foreign service and civil service that the pipeline looks good. There's always more opportunity we can do. We can't, uh, we can't lay down on this. We got to keep a very vigilant focus on it. And I look forward, if confirmed, to making sure that we're doing that. I appreciate that. If you look at uh, the private sector, I hope you look at some ideas uh, from there. Uh, not only pipeline creating, but also mentoring to help people uh, make career paths up into the higher ranks and echelons. But I appreciate that um, response. Uh, Mr. Mitali, thank you very much. It's an honor to be able to sit with you. I, I have a, a concern that I've expressed to every rank of w within the State Department about the fact that I travel around and I see us dialing up military engagement, which is, is justified in many cases, uh, but dialing down the kind of things we're doing to, for stabilization efforts. Um, whether what I saw in Lebanon was stunning to me. Uh, again, our partnership with the LAF is incredibly essential, but what they're dealing with in terms of refugee and the refugee crisis there could be a hotbed for uh, radicalization. The same thing with uh, southern Turkey when I have my own we have our own members of the State Department bemoaning to me how we're ratcheting down our investments in areas that ultimately in the future cause us severe crises in terms of uh, a radicalization. Uh, I look at the budget priorities coming from this administration and it's stunning. Uh, uh, I hear from the highest ranks, uh, even our Secretary of uh, Defense has said that if you cut the State Department, I'm gonna ha you better buy me more bullets. Um, and I'm wondering just what you think in, in your perspective is uh, and how are you gonna meet um, which we see is an increasingly complicated world, as my colleague said, uh, from uh, uh, greater uh, in, uh, internally displaced people, greater refugees. It just seems like a time that we are going in the wrong direction and, and causing us a situation where we're gonna have to pay for it in the long run through continued crises. Thank you, Senator. Um, I agree with you that if we don't embed, I would even start with military planning should have a stabilization from the beginning so that when you finish or you're nearing the end of kinetic actions that we're starting with the stabilization component of it. If we don't, as you indicated, we will be there again. So that I would at least at minimum have our people on the ground, but also what, what I would emphasize is where we can have local partners and where we can enable those legitimate local authorities on the ground to assume some of the security components, whether that's law enforcement, whether that's developing their own security, uh, components, services, governance, that's the part of it that has to be part of, of the, the component after military or, or we just will we'll be back in doing what we're doing again and again. So I agree with you. And, and again, if confirmed, I'm committed to working on this uh, with, with this issue with, with you. Well, I wish we could talk more. My time's expired. Uh, the CSO is designed to be a civilian-led uh, policy group, if your resources are being cut and the resources of the State Department are being cut from our diplomatic corps to our stabilization efforts, I really do worry about the long-term impact. But I'm gonna tread upon the generosity of the chairman just to ask this last question. Um, uh, I know you love the United States of America, but I hope that you love New Jersey the most. Is that true? I absolutely love New Jersey the most. Thank you very much. 
and the United States. Yes. <laughs> Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank my colleague from New Jersey for establishing that. And the fact that New Jersey is in the United States, so it's, there's, no, there's no difference between loving one and loving the other. So uh, let me uh, just, uh, uh, since the chairman raised the concern about moving nominations ahead uh, despite uh, or in the face of not having some uh, responses, uh, there's a series of responses. I'm, I'm ready uh, to lift my hold on the Assistant Secretary for the Western Hemisphere, but I said that we need some responses. Uh, we need some responses uh, on the Cuba sonic attack briefing that I've asked for. Uh, we need uh, some responses on uh, the Cuba uh, PAHO uh, doctors, doc Cuban doctors that are sent abroad, and basically it's almost uh, forced labor. They get sent abroad to places like Venezuela. Uh, they send their salaries back largely. Uh, should be a consideration in our TIP report that somehow un 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 incomprehensibly keeps them at a standard they shouldn't. So, uh, you know, one would hope that you could get these responses without having to use the quote-unquote leverage of holding up a nominee, regardless of who that nominee is. And so it is my hope that we can get to a point where there is a flow, in a reasonable time, but nonetheless a flow, of getting answers to these questions. So I'll add those as part of the concerns that members of this committee have. Uh, and, and I just want to add uh, one other question, uh, one other point to my colleague on diversity, which is something I pursued for 26 years and you and I discussed. You know, if you recruit only at certain institutions that are known for foreign policy, uh, you're going to ultimately have a very small pool. If you recruit from a broader universe where there are more diverse students, uh, you know, in New Jersey, Seton Hall University, for example, has a great school of foreign diplomacy. Uh, others do as well, but they don't largely recruit there. So that's just one of many examples across the country. We always go to some of those institutions, fine institutions right here in the nation capital and vicinity, but that gives you a small universe. And the second thing is the oral examination. You know, I, I ask you once you're confirmed to look at the whole process of the oral examination because it's very subjective. I'm not sure some of the people in the highest offices in our land could pass the oral exam that the State Department subjectively puts out. And so looking at how that exam takes place as a way that is very often subjectively disqualifying individuals because they supposedly cannot orally communicate is a real question that I've had for some time. So I commend those to your attention. Let me just finalize with Dr. Natalie on, on one or two other things to better understand. Could you discuss in some detail how you, the bureau that you would lead, conflict and stabilization, would contribute to supporting democracy and advancing human rights, particularly in post-conflict societies? Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, before we can get part of the democratization process, and by that in some of these areas, I, I, I look at how do you move from authoritarianism to democracies, having certain requisites in place, whether that be socioeconomic, whether that be security, whether that be political. Uh, CSO, as a stabilization organization, my understanding is to set the conditions so that organizations such as USAID and those that work on construction can effectively conduct their work. So first is to do, conduct 
or continue with the work that they do, such as identifying where there are trigger points, where there is potential areas of conflict, engaging in peace processes so that we don't slide back into authoritarianism, and at the same time, work on some of the socioeconomic and governance issues, engaging in some of the political negotiations on the ground so that local administrations that can be decentralized and inclusive of all of the groups on the ground. That's where I see, it's in some of these areas in detail, these states have broken down. They haven't broken up, they've broken down. So that now targeting more at a local level, administrative capacity, inclusiveness of groups and minority groups that have, have not had a voice before, uh, identifying where atrocities going to be and calling out people on human rights abuses and holding our pa partners accountable. We have a tendency to think, in, in my view, when we go in and we have our partners, that we, we kind of let them get away with a little bit too much. That doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect, but I think that we can or, and should do a better job in holding our partners accountable and being frank with them as well. Let's so, take an example. Let me give you a, a real-life example that's going on right now, Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela, civilians are suffering. They face acute shortages just to stay alive, severe shortages of food and medicine, deep political crisis, human rights abuses, uh, using security forces to crush opposition. In your view, what are some of the ways the United States and the international community can help address this crisis? Thank you, Senator. First, there's the the humanitarian assistance where we can, that's working with our diplomatic embassies and, 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 and helping those individuals that are the victims of this, what's going on in Venezuela. I understand that there's a million Venezuelans that have left the country and possibly that will double in the next year. Where are those regional neighbors or regional actors that can provide support to that? Also taking measures against the, the, those who are the government officials who are um, engaging in these human rights abuses, targeted sanctions, visa restrictions, or whatever that we may can to hold the perpetrators of these atrocities accountable. And then, of course, to continue to work with, at a diplomatic level, ways that we can empower the civil society organizations. I understand that CSO is providing support to the Western Hemisphere's Affairs Unit so that they can work with uh, those civil activists who are still trying to establish or enhance their institutions at a local level. One last question, by Mayor Chairman. The, the Bureau transitioned previously from a mission focus on helping to drive integrated efforts to prevent, uh, respond to, and stabilize crises to one that is more focused uh, on leveraging its analytical capabilities to help other bureaus and agencies understand and stabilize conflicts. If you are confirmed, is that something that you intend to maintain the focus under uh, as, and, and if not, how would you recommend altering uh, its mission? Thank you, Senator. I'm a, my understanding, and I'm aware of the background of CSO, and I've spoken to the previous Assistant Secretary and others involved, that there has been some um, moving back between operations and analytical and, unclear, and lack of clarity on what exactly CSO is focusing on. I would see, I see, tremendous value in the, in the data analytics that CSO has developed. I would, I would and will, if confirmed, more clearly hone in on those data analytics so it can be applied. Analytics for the sake of analytics don't get us very far. But if we can apply that into the programming by looking at this and saying, 
we understand in real life time what is happening here in eastern Ukraine, and we should now develop programs or CVE programs that, that reflect this and then feed this into also policy recommendations. But throughout, CSO would be, be it's very important that CSO works integrally with regional bureaus as well as those other relevant organizations. Well, thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, just a couple of questions in closing. I know that our staff has met extensively with both of you and, and uh, had numbers of questions. Um, just to highlight a couple of Mr. Bellateo, um, the 2017 State Department Authorization Act created a pilot program for lateral entry into the Foreign Service so that people who are distinguished, who've distinguished themselves in their careers, and done exemplary things could move in as a foreign service officer, not unlike what you're doing here. Um, I just would like to have your commitment, and I, I know you'll give it, but I want to highlight in this public meeting that, that y'all will pursue this pilot program so that we can continue and enhance the, talent, uh, the talent that we have at the State Department. Senator, if confirmed, I support that pilot program. I think we need to look at where we can get talent. Uh, uh, and grow that talent within the department. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, a lot of discussion, you mentioned it in your opening comments, about some of the building of embassies around the country. And on one hand, uh, you know, when we travel, we see these, you know, fantastically uh, new embassies that are built a long way away from the populations that, that we're dealing with. And that may be the appropriate way for us to go forward. I, I'm not, but I, I would just ask you to look at that and make sure that the decision we made years ago to, to build in that capacity is still the sound route to go. And obviously the most preeminent issue for us is making sure that our State Department employees are safe and, and we understand that. But secondly, um, looking at the possibility of standardization, it seems that uh, with all the cost overruns that are taking place, there, it's, it's like we begin from the very beginning each time and for to, to look at the ability to standardize as I know you had to do in your business to make it successful. If y'all would look at ways of doing that, uh, I would appreciate it. Senator, if confirmed, I commit to looking at that and making that a priority. I think we can do a lot better in terms of how we're looking at the cost and the designs and making sure that we're looking at keeping it simple, keeping it basic, making sure we have those things in our uh, overseas buildings. Well, I think both of you uh, as as has been seen today are exceptionally qualified for these jobs and we thank you for your willingness to do it. I think that both of you, both in the area that really needs a lot of work and stabilization, I think you're going to have the ability to reshape that in the appropriate way. And uh, Brian, just from the standpoint of your relationship in the past, I can't imagine if I'm Secretary Pompeo having something, having someone better than you. Uh, we'll leave the record open until the close of business tomorrow. I do want to say, though, in closing, you saw an exchange here that I helped generate, and I'm glad you saw. Um, our relationship with the department is not what it ought to be. The leveraging takes place both ways, unfortunately. And it's... Uh, it's a relationship that needs to change. I think Secretary Pompeo has an opportunity, if others don't impede him, to be a historic figure. I really do. And I want to support his efforts. I think he's eminently qualified. But our relationship with the department right now is not good. And 
for us to have to press and leverage, maybe hold up to how immensely qualified nominees just to get simple responses is uh, abhorrent. And I want the leveraging to stop. And I want this State Department to respond to the elected officials here when they have requests. And so I hope a lot of this is going to clean up really rapidly because both of you are needed in the department. But I hope you'll send that message back and having, you know, having to negotiate to get witnesses up here when what Senator Menendez said is true, we have no idea. We, matter of fact, notices being sent out to the intelligence community to not meet with us, not meet with us over these issues because they want to have the opportunity to talk with us first and yet they won't come up here. So um, just understand what we're saying. If you're confirmed, I hope you will help correct that. But uh, I think all of us here are really tired of being leveraged and I think you're going to see some drastic actions take place if it doesn't change. With that, the meeting's adjourned.